Now, I did not get an illustration. I looked for one on the way in this morning, but I did get this yesterday from Barb Sable that I'd like to read to you. It's a quote from Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite pastors. I heard him when I was still pastoring in New York before coming here, and I can remember when I heard him, I thought, he's the first guy I've ever heard younger than me that I could listen to, that I like to hear. He was preaching at a conference center. Listen to what he said. In our communities, there will not be churches a decade from now. Get this? You know how long a decade is? A decade from now, unless God comes and lights a fire in the hearts and minds of pastors concerning the authority and the sufficiency of God's holy word. Did you get that? A decade from now, unless pastors in their hearts and minds are stirred by God regarding the authority and the sufficiency of God's holy word. Now, why did I say that? Partly because of this. <clears throat> this church has always, since I've been around, since 1994, when I came here from New York and began to pastor, in fact, it was just about this time of year in November of 93 that I candidated here, and I had said to the elders, I will be coming if you call me to teach the word of God in his power and strength, not mine. And I want you to know that I will never be the one-man leader of this church because God is the head of every local church. Christ is the head of every local church. And I just want to say to us as a body this morning, when we think of the man to come and be the next pastor, and by the way, my hat's not in the ring, so just know that. It's definitely not. But as we're praying and we're looking for the man, don't think of a man that can come and just meet your needs. Don't think of a man that can come to this church and somehow identify with your age group because he might be closer to it. Don't think of a man that can come here and just be in himself attractive to people. Think of a man who has a heart for the Word of God, who understands the Word of God, divides it rightly, and preaches it with a passionate heart. Forget all these other things. Alistair Begg is absolutely right on. If we don't find pastors in churches in this land, in our day, in this decade, in a decade the church may be gone. You want a man here that loves Christ, loves his word, knows his word, and will preach it with all of his heart. Forget all the other stuff. Now that's just an introduction that has nothing to do with the sermon. But it's a word from at least one of your elders in terms of the future of this body.
And I hope you take it seriously. I hope you take Alistair's words seriously. Because I think he's right, right on. Now, here's the other introduction. This gets into the message. And I'm looking at my watch. So let's see. I will, I will keep looking at it. And I will give myself about 40 minutes to get this done. Okay? If you're not with me, we'll excuse you. But um, you, you may miss the benediction. If someone came up to you, you're just meeting somebody for the first time. Maybe it's on a plane, maybe it's in the office area, and they look at you and they say, are you a Christian? How would you answer them? Here's what some people might say. They might say something like this. Well, I, I think so. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm trying hard to become a Christian. I, I went forward in my church a few weeks ago and I even signed a card afterwards. And, and I'm, I'm just doing my very best to become one and I, and I hope that I will make it. If you answered in any of those ways, something's wrong. Something is definitely wrong in terms of your faith. You don't work hard to become a Christian. Do you remember the Pharisee? The Pharisee was one who said, I, I am thankful that I'm not like other people, like this guy over here, this tax gatherer. I am so thankful I'm not like him. I, I tithe. I give to the Lord. I, I'm not one of these guys that commits adultery. And, and I do all this for him. And the Lord says, this man was lost. Totally lost. He was trying to make himself pleasing to God, and you cannot do that. You cannot make yourself acceptable to God. You can't do anything. You can't try harder. I went through that stage in my life where I said, okay, I'm going to stop drinking, or at least so much. I'm going to stop saying bad words, and I'm going to start going to church. None of those things made me a Christian. None of them. I failed until one night in my life when the Lord changed me completely. That doesn't mean I don't sin or that any Christian doesn't sin. We deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin, John says in 1 John chapter 1. We deceive ourselves. What should be the answer if someone says to a genuine Christian, are you a Christian? It would be something like this. Yes, I am by the grace of God. Yes, I am because Jesus Christ redeemed me. He died for me and he paid for all my sins. And he did it all. And then he drew me to himself and showed me what he had done. And I received that like a beggar with an empty hand.
So there's no boasting. But there is certainty if you believe the word of God. If your heart has been changed, you're a Christian. Don't apologize for that. Don't, don't say that, well, I'm trying. Because you cannot do anything, not one thing in yourself to become rightly related to God, to be forgiven for all eternity, to have an inheritance, to understand the mysteries of God. And when we get to this section of Ephesians chapter 1, we understand that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And he planned in Christ in the beloved to adopt us as his own sons. And then he sent his son, and his son accomplished. God is the source of the plan, but the son is the one who is the means to the end of the plan. It is through his coming and becoming one with us, becoming like us, becoming a man, God in flesh, and then living under the law perfectly, never sinning once. And then at the proper day to go to the cross and cry out, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew why. He cried out those words so we would understand what was going on. And the why was Jesus had to pay the ransom price. Jesus had to pay for our sins. He had to shed his blood. The blood was sufficient to deal with our sins forever and ever. Sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle for us. So that there's no more condemnation so that there is no one that can bring a charge against God's elect, so that there's no one who can take it from us. He has given it, and he's given it for all eternity by his grace, nothing to do with us or the works that we do. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe what the word of God says? When we proclaim this good news, the gospel of what Jesus has done, it is all about salvation and our salvation. And nothing should bring more joy to us than to know that we have a Savior who has paid the price for all eternity. And we are His and we are secure and we will be with Him one day forevermore in heavenly bliss, with him, in righteousness, without sin, without death, without temptation, without all the problems that we face today. And it's all here. Read with me as we go from verse 3 again down to verse 12 in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ comes up about 12 times in these 10 verses, either by name or by pronoun, inference. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. They're spiritual, and none is left out. Every one of them in the heavenly places in Christ. He's there. He's interceding for us. He's already come and already died, and the work is done. Just as he chose us in him, the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. There's this in purpose, set apart, set apart unto God, holy. That's what it basically means. Set apart for his glory, for his purpose. That we should be holy and blameless without blame, and we are. We're to live that way. We're to walk by the Spirit and become more and more conformed to the image of the Son but we are set apart, and we are blameless. No one can look at us as a believer. That's hard sometimes to understand, especially because when we look in the mirror at us, we what? We recognize we're not perfect every day. There are times when we get frustrated when we even take out a little bit of our frustration and anger on each other, a husband and a wife, or parents and children. And Satan comes along and says, look at you. You, you think you're a Christian? You're not a Christian because you will fail at some point. You're a Christian because you've been chosen and Christ has redeemed you and forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And no one can take you out of his hand. What you do when you fail is you confess. You say, Lord, that was wrong. You go apologize to your spouse, to your child, to your parent. You say, That's not, that wasn't pleasing to God, and I just gave in. And I'm sorry. And Lord, forgive me. If we confess our sins, John says, right after he says, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself and say that you have no sin. You will. Even believers will sin. But we deal with it because we have the Spirit of God living in us. And he convicts us. And he gives us power to move on. And he gives us the ability to confess and John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we do that because we desire to keep fellowship and we're thankful to him and we know that it's all of him. But if somebody asks you if you're a Christian, you can tell them, yes, I am. And it's entirely by his grace. Let's keep reading down here. I think I got a little bit off these verses. Verse 5. Before him in love, and then it says, in love, 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely, freely bestowed on us in the beloved. When you get to that word, who's the beloved? Who's the beloved here? It's Christ, the Son. So he says it's in the beloved. And what comes from verse 7 down through verse 12 is primarily, though the Father is woven in a bit and though the Spirit is woven in a bit, it's primarily all about what Christ has contributed to make our salvation a done deal. He's the means. The Father's plan would have not been effective if it had not been that the Son said, I will go down, I will become one of them, and I will die for them, and I will bear your wrath that they are due so that they can live. That's the gospel. That's salvation. So let's start reading with verse 7. The beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavenlies and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now, there are four things that we pick up in this section dealing with the Son of God, dealing with what he has done to deliver us from condemnation and bondage to sin and make us a child of God. And here are the four things. He's redeemed. He has forgiven. He has revealed the mystery regarding himself and salvation and the way to salvation. And he has obtained for us eternal, an eternal inheritance, which no one can take away. I've read articles recently about people in families that something went wrong and because a child in the family displeased one of the parents who was the last one living and the will was in their control, took them out of the will. They're gone. In fact, I think I saw that in one of those articles in the paper to Dear Amy. And the person who was out of the will said, all my kids, all my, my siblings now have the money, and I, I would think, what can I do to let them know that I have needs too and they should share with me? They were removed. But our inheritance is eternal. 
we have been adopted. We're in the will. And we are redeemed forevermore because of Jesus Christ. Let's start with the redemption. The word literally means to acquire or set free by purchase. When I was growing up, we had S&H green stamps. Anybody remember those things? A few. Tells my age, doesn't it? We had S&H green stamps, and everywhere you went to the grocery store, stores, they would, you'd buy something, they'd give you these green stamps, you would put them in your little book, and when you had several books, you would go to the S&H Redemption Center, where you would turn in your books for products, you would purchase, you would redeem the product that your little book had now made of value. It's all about purchasing, it's about paying the price for the required price in order to set something free, basically. It was used in Roman days, in Christ's days, of setting free a slave, of buying a slave on, a slave on the slave market, paying the price, setting them free. That's what it means to be redeemed. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you there was a price. The Father has a plan but a price must be made so that the Father can be just and sin covered. Have you ever heard people ask the question, could God have saved us any other way than sending his son? The answer is no. Because there's no other way that the price could be paid than God became man and died and shed his blood and bore the wrath of the Father for our sin. There is no other way. That's foolish to even ask. He redeemed us. He paid the price. And the price is staggering. Think of this. Every sinner that is saved and every sin that they committed is covered for all eternity. Who could do that? Who could pay that price? But it was the price required in order for God to be satisfied that his righteous demands were met so that he could look at us and say, welcome, you're my child. I've covered your sin. I have paid the price. And you do not have to ever worry or fret again. Redemption is so crucial. He had to die, and he had to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God. He had to be holy. He had to bear it all. Who could do that but the God-man? Just a mere man couldn't. He's the second Adam, and he's a righteous Adam. He never sinned once, but he had to be the God-man because he had to bear wrath that we were due for how long? All eternity. All eternity. He paid it all. On that time on the cross, on those hours in darkness, when the Father poured out his wrath that we were due on him, he had to die. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, 
but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, imputed, imputed righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And listen to these words. Turn with me if you would. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. Peter writes, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, purchased, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Isn't it interesting that he keeps referring to, and Paul does too, that we are redeemed by the blood he doesn't just say we're we are redeemed by death, but by blood. Think back to the Old Testament for a moment. The whole Old Testament animal sacrifice system was to be a picture, a figure of what we needed, of what Christ would pay someday with his own life as the Lamb of God. Do you remember when he's worshipped in heaven? When in chapter 5 of Revelation... They're looking for someone to open the book. And John, the apostle, is there. And he's observing this. And he's weeping because no one comes forward to open the book, the seven seals. Until all of a sudden, one of the angels speaks up and says, there is one. And he's here. And Christ comes in. And he opens the book. The book of life. And they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And his blood was shed. His blood was shed on our behalf. The emphasis is in Hebrews, and I'm not going to take time to read that because I, I don't have time to read it to you. But in Hebrews chapter 9, you read it, and it talks about Christ did not come with a lamb, with the blood of Bulls and goats, which was not able to save men anyway. It was all a picture of the one that would come. He came with his own blood, and he didn't enter into the earthly tabernacle where the animal blood was shed. He went to the heavenly tabernacle and sprinkled his blood there. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. We're redeemed by blood. And then we find out that that redeeming, that purchasing by the blood of Christ brings forgiveness of sins. That's the next point, forgiveness of sins. And in this point, what we want to point out very clearly is this. What Paul is saying is redemption results in forgiveness All sins, past sins, and I have plenty. Present sins, and I have some. And future sins, 
they're all done. Don't think like Roman Catholics who say your sins are covered in the past, but now it's up to you to work yourself to the future. I've, I've been a chaplain in an Air Force unit that was 95% Catholic, and so as that chaplain, I attended some funerals of some of our men in the Catholic Church where they took their little burning pots or whatever they were and even went around and baptized the casket in case the person in it had sinned and didn't get a chance to repent of it. I've watched that. That does no good for anyone. The only thing that does good is the blood of Christ that brings forgiveness for all sins, and it is all sins. Every single one of them. If I die and have a bad thought while driving down the road, and before I confess that thought, have a car wreck, I'm going to be with Christ, and so are you. Every one of you that knows him and has been chosen and died for and forgiven. He forgives you of every sin that you've ever committed. And we need to start living like that. We need to start believing that. We are going to sin. And I'm telling you, there's no day that goes by that probably every one of us hasn't committed some sin, either by omission or commission or whatever it is. Folks, it is foolish to think that we can deal with all the sins that are in our future. But it's pleasing to him to know that the Son of God came from heaven and has paid the price and died so that we can know without a doubt we're forgiven. Have you ever sinned? Does Satan like to use those sins to remind you? Does he like to discourage you? Does he like to get you to doubt? Yes, he does. And we come back to the truth of Ephesians chapter 1 that we have a salvation that is secure and last and it is genuine and the price has been paid and we have been forgiven. Remember again I was talking about the Pharisee who was with the tax gatherer? You remember what the tax gatherer said? The Pharisee's trying to build himself up. Look what I do for God. The tax gatherer simply lowers his face. He won't even look up. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Remember those words? What did Jesus say about that man? He went down to his house justified. And all he did was what? Cry out for the mercy of God, which was there. And he received and he went down to his house, justified, declared righteous in Christ, with the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. Perfect. Perfect. And the Pharisee walked away 
lost, who is tithing, who is praying, who is avoiding certain sins, because he was all doing it in terms of his own ability and his own power and holding up that to God and saying, look at me. The Christian has nothing to hold up to God except Christ and him alone and his work in our behalf alone. Nothing else. That's humbling, folks, but that's Scripture. That is what the Word of God says. We are redeemed. The price has been paid and our sins have been forgiven. And then comes this third section from verse 8, the end of verse 8, down to verse 10. Let me uh, turn back to Ephesians real quickly, and then we'll just read this again. Look at verse, the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. I take that as the Father entering back into this because it goes on to say, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, Christ. Christ. He purposed that this would be fulfilled in him. This mystery would be revealed with a view to an administ... Excuse me. He made known to us this mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavenly places and things upon earth. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying that when Christ came, purposed by the Father, he revealed all of the mysteries. I want you to think for a moment of Jesus speaking in parables. The disciples came to him one time and they said, why do you speak to these people in parables? He said, it's so they won't get it. I always thought the parables were to give explanations so they would get it. Jesus says, no, I'm doing exactly what Isaiah said. Their hearts are hardened. They don't want to hear. I'm speaking in parables so they don't get it. But you get it because the mystery has been revealed to you. See, Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. The plan of salvation is in the Old Testament, but Paul will tell us in chapter 3 of Ephesians that it wasn't all clearly revealed. It was a mystery. Paul had time with Jesus Christ in the desert after Paul was saved on the road of Damascus, and Jesus taught him things out of the Old Testament that the average man could not see because they were a mystery. Here's what he's saying to us. Spiritual things are only understood as the Spirit reveals them to us. Somebody comes along with a gospel to me before I was age 22, 23 in that area. I guess I turned 23 that month when I was saved. People could come up to me and they had all my life and told me the gospel. I did not get it because it's only spiritually understood. It remained a mystery until my eyes were opened and Christ coming not only provided redemption and forgiveness 
but opening up our eyes to see our miserable condition and to see what he has done and to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I, I don't deserve that. It's from you, and it's a gift. By the way, we are saved by grace through faith, and that, not of ourselves, not even the faith. It's because the mystery is revealed. It's because we see, and we hold out our hand and receive, like the tax gatherer, be merciful to me, the sinner. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Jesus is involved in that, his death on the cross, to reveal. He came and revealed fully what the plan of God was, partially revealed in the Old Testament. And Paul got that, and Paul is revealing it, and he's revealed it to the Ephesians. He's revealing it to us. There is no other way of salvation to be rightly related to the living God than to come to the one and receive what that one has done for the Father through the shedding of his own blood. And then Paul goes on and, and sums up in this. Look from verse 10 and following to the end of verse 12. He says, in him, at the end of verse 10, in him, Christ, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. I want you to, to look with me at a passage. I want you to look with me, if you would, <clears throat> at Titus. Turn to Titus. And it's going to be in chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, Titus. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What is that? Christ. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. By the way, this age we live in is a mess. And it's getting messier and uglier. And we're in it but we're to live righteously and godly in this present age, but there's an age to come. So he goes on in verse 3 to say, looking for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? It's the inheritance that we have received and will receive finally and ultimately when Christ comes back again. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory and of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you look forward to that? That's the day when the age will change from this age to the age to come. And we will be with him if we're still here, and changed and resurrected, and with him in the new heavens and new earth, where there will be joy and rejoicing with no tears ever again. I don't know about you, maybe it's my age, 
but I long for that day. But I think some of us, especially younger ones, are thinking, there's plenty here to rejoice over. I'll just, I, I just want to keep living and I just want to rejoice over this. That's not the inheritance, folks. It's okay to rejoice in what God allows you to rejoice in in this life, but he says also, you will suffer for my name. Get ready, it is coming. Even if you don't watch the news in November, it's coming. Right, Alicia? It's coming. So pick it back up in December. But Paul says, looking for the blessed hope. We live godly looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Christ coming and redeeming and forgiving and revealing himself the mystery that human eyes can't see by themselves. They never will. They won't get it. You could preach all day to them, and unless the Spirit comes in because of Christ and reveals, they will remain lost. But those who get it, whose eyes are open, whose ears begin to hear because of the grace of God, they have an eternal inheritance to the praise of his glory. That's salvation. Thanksgiving is coming up. We have so many things we might think about to be thankful for that we could be thankful for. But here's the one thing that really should be at the top of the list. That I, a sinner, am saved and guaranteed an eternal hope that no one can take away through the Trinity, through the choosing of the Father, the adopting, through the redemption of his son, the forgiveness, the opening our eyes to see and guaranteeing an eternal inheritance. What is there that could possibly be even near the top of the list but that? And I would encourage you and myself and all of us this Thanksgiving to make it the one thing. This so great salvation and do it to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory he didn't have to do anything we were under condemnation and he has a plan to redeem and to forgive and to prepare do we really see that do we really understand what salvation is? If somebody asks us if we're a believer, will we answer biblically? Yes, I am a Christian. Not because I deserve anything from God. 
God. He sent his son to die. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. Are you thankful for that? Do you understand that? If you don't, come see us. The elders will be up front. We'll talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if your heart is this morning, I don't know, but I want it, then come. If you know you have it, then be thankful to the praise of his glory. Amen? Father, we will be eternally thankful for your grace, for your love, for your mercy, and we rejoice this morning. That which we could never do for ourselves, you have done. The world thinks it's foolishness. The world comes up with its own plans of how to be better, how to make themselves acceptable, how to write off God entirely. But thankful, thankfully, Father, you have not written us off. You have sent your Son to die. We give you praise this morning, and we do it in Jesus' precious powerful, mighty name. Amen.